in my part of the world, there's a lot of agriculture, there's a lot of engineering, and there's a lot of labor, which I think we all kind of understand each other. Whereas if you start going more towards the cities, I think there'd be a lot less understanding of what it is that we do. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Today's podcast is part two of a multi-part series in which we're talking to folks in the machining world outside of the United States. We're making a second stop in the UK to talk to Tom Pierce, founder of Cirque Manufacturing in Westbury, England, a small CNC shop specializing in producing flow control products using a citizen Swiss lathe and Hitachi four-axis mills. I spoke with Tom about entrepreneurship in the UK and his company's first consumer product, a luxury pen machined from exotic super alloys. As a used machine tool dealer specializing in high production equipment, I've encountered plenty of fire damaged machines. An average fire costs a business $300,000 to $500,000 and six to eight weeks of lost production time. Installed on over 15,000 CNC machines, FireTrace protects shops running oil-based coolants by automatically detecting and suppressing fires within seconds. FireTrace systems are safe for people and machines because they use clean agents that leave no residue. The systems are compatible with all major machinery brands and can be installed within a few hours. For more details, go to www.firetrace.com swarfcast. That's www.firetrace.com slash S-W-A-R-F-C-A-S-T. I am honored to be with Tom Pierce, the founder of Cirque Manufacturing in Westbury, England. They're a, a turning shop. Haven't been around very long. Six years? Yes? Yes. Six years now, yeah. Six years we're going to talk about starting up a shop in England, and we're going to continue this series we just started going around the world, talking to people about what it's like to be in their country, machining in their country. Let's take it away. So, Tom, first, just give us the 60-second version of your background, and then uh, let's talk about Cirque Manufacturing and, and starting it. Okay, well, thanks for having me, Noah. I am an engineer, electrician, and uh, a creator, I guess. I started my time as an apprentice electrician, and then uh, I grew into maintenance engineering and installations in a big rubber factory, and I decided I could start my own company. But we offered too many different services because I knew I, I had lots of different skills and lots of different avenues I wanted to go down. Right. I thought that would uh, it would help me hedge my bets. I'd have a greater pool of work to draw from. Sure. What was the company you had been in before this? You said before something with rubber? Yeah, I worked in a big rubber factory that makes the rubber compound that's used to go into O-ring seals, aircraft tires, window seals, baffles, bellows, that sort of thing. 
Okay. They make they make strip and slab, but they don't make anything from the rubber. They just make the custom compounds. So you may want a rubber that has certain elastic properties, or you may want a rubber that has certain uh, abrasion resistant qualities. And so they'll make the custom compound to your specification and then send it to you in a strip or slab. Interesting. And so you said you were an electrician. Were you? Did you go to school for engineering, or is that that's a different track? Being in a uh, kind of a different track, yeah. I finished school and had various different jobs uh, before I ended up as an apprentice electrician with my father. Um, I worked for my dad for 10 years and we were mostly industrial and commercial electricians. So we're always surrounded by machinery, uh, engineering shops, welding shops, woodworking shops. And that really is how I got to meet a lot of the I guess the people that ended up being my early customers, to be honest. Okay. I opened my eyes to the world of manufacturing and engineering. The thing is, in our country, we had a thing called a credit crunch, and uh, it caused a lot of the businesses that we worked for to either cease trading or sell the machines and the bits and pieces that we built for them. Are you talking about 2008? Yeah. 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 It was was a ripple effect that didn't, didn't affect us straight away. But certainly some of the larger places we worked for, they started to outsource their manufacturing or they started to throttle back on maintenance and installations and new equipment. Um, so during that time, we started doing a lot more domestic type work and we were searching for other avenues of work. And we found a job where my father managed to get us this work, wiring the data and power in a laboratory in a rubber factory. So we went to work. There was weeks and weeks of work in this laboratory. And during the time, they asked if he, they could have me for one to two days a week, which was great because my dad you know, subbed me to them for one to two days a week. And really, I mean, that... That was a big eye-opener. I mean, they had some big machines, big bearings, big drives, huge motors. And I was, I was smitten with it. I, I loved it. It was, a, it was a great experience. And so after a while, they said, well, do you want to come on with us full time? And, uh, and it, it just, it, everything about it appealed to me. It seemed to be the right time. And so I took their offer and I worked for them for, a, for just over a year, I think. Did it bother you to leave your father? No. <laughs> You may know, just as well as the rest of us that work with our fathers, it's not easy to work with your father, but it's, I think we came out of it stronger, I think. Um, I'm privileged that I got to spend 10 years of my life working next to a great man. Excellent. So you worked in the rubber factory, you got a full-time job there, and then what got you to leave and start your own company? Well, while I was an electrician, I wanted to build a Mark II Golf. And so I bought a little workshop and I wanted to build an exhaust system for it. So I started to learn how to TIG weld. You're talking about the the Volkswagen? Yeah, Mark II Volkswagen Golf, yeah. Just do alterations to it or? Yeah, I, I, I re- we stripped it down. Modifications? Yeah, rebuilt it with a different engine. And uh, I, it was just going to backtrack slightly by saying I, I taught myself how to TIG weld and I started a little sideline business outside of being an electrician. So I was doing TIG welding repairs and batch work. I used to collect two, 300 parts from an engineering company, take them back to my little workshop, weld them up in the evenings and then take them back a couple of days later. Well, during that time of working at the rubber factory, those jobs just kept growing and they kept getting bigger and bigger. I was also getting more experienced in the maintenance role. 
at the rubber factory. And so near, I think, one November 2014, one of my customers I was welding for said that this job is about to go big time. Now, it was a, it was a job for, a, I don't know how much I can say, it's for part of the oil refinement process where we were welding these parts for them. Um, well, that job was about to go big time. They had massive orders and uh, they said, you know, this is enough work for you to start your own business, Tom. And uh, I thought, well, with all the experience I've got and the promise of all this, all this work, and uh, I've already got a little unit, so I think I'm going to bite the bullet and go for it. And uh, I think it's every technician's dream to own their own business and to, you know, be your own boss and be free. I don't know if it's every technician's dream. No, perhaps not every. It certainly was mine. Yeah, I can totally tell. You're you have the the entrepreneurial spirit in you. Spirit. So that makes me go to the question of: uh, Do you think that England is a good place for an entrepreneur? If you have an idea, if you have a little bit of money, uh, or if you don't have any money, is it a good good place to start a business? Depends what kind of business, of course. But Yeah, I don't have a lot to go. I've never tried to grow a business in another country, but certainly, well, to put it this way, that big job never came. The orders for those parts never came, and the oil and gas price fell, and the order with my customers got dropped. And so I nearly went and asked for my job back, but, and I'd just taken on the lease of a building on, the, on a trading estate rather than my first unit on a stable yard. And so I, I've signed in for a five-year lease, Oy. Yeah, no work whatsoever. Um, I've got a welding, ben- a welding bench and a, a TIG welder. And so I just went touting for work. And uh, I managed to find myself some small welding jobs. Uh, and then I found a few more welding jobs. And then we had a, a batch, a large recurring batch run of um, like a phone box sized cabinets that you put electronics into. Okay. It, we used to make 15 a month. And then we made 20 a month, and then it was 30 a month, and then it was 15 a week. And uh, these are big phone box-sized cabinets. So not only did I have that little unit, but then I took on the unit next door. And then uh, that wasn't big enough when we bought some small machines. So we took on the unit. I took on the unit next door to that. Um, So I, I think to answer your question, I think it comes down to a lot of luck and perseverance. But I did start a business thinking that I had months and months of work ahead of me and actually I had nothing. Sure. So do you think that many English people have a or British people have an entrepreneurial spirit? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think I think it's even probably more so now people are trying to diversify themselves and trying to take control of their own lives. I think that's really what it comes down to. I think the self-employed aspect is more it's more of a lifestyle thing. I certainly didn't go into this because I wanted to be rich, <laughs> yeah. but because it's what I wanted to do. Um, I think maybe there are definitely more people deserving of the, of the title entrepreneur when they come up with something truly great, make millions and millions of pounds and uh, don't ever actually get their hands dirty. I think that's very clever. <laughs> but you like to get your hands dirty. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, before I continue grilling you on the... England stuff. I want to talk about, you have a, a consumer product that you were telling me about, you were excited about. Tell me, tell me about what your, your latest and greatest project is. Uh, well, we've 
I've tried to come up with lots of different product ideas. And a lot of the times I can solve, I can see a solution to a problem that no one else has solved. I've designed it. I've prototyped it. I've uh, talked to people about it. We've built it. We've used some of my products in the shop. But when it really comes down to it, the amount of effort, energy, and money it would take to market these items and go to people and convince them that they need these items is is more energy and manpower that I've than I've got to do yeah. on top to grow a job shop business. Yeah. So I've come up with a, a very very nice pen. <laughs> so it's an item that nobody needs because everyone's <laughs> <laughs> everyone's got a pen to hand. Or don't, or they don't use pens. I mean, yeah, you're, you um, said you're 32. Yeah, you use a pen. I use a pen. I'm 40, but I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> it, it's something that you don't absolutely need, but it is at the same time. It's something you could totally use. Yeah, and it's also something that people will want. So I don't need to have to go out and and convince people that they need this product. Uh, I am only really interested in selling it to people that really appreciate and want it, which is something that can happen all by itself. It can sell itself then. A pen may sound very inane, but it's we're very experienced at cutting exotic super alloys, Nitronic 60 and uh, Inconels. And so I designed a pen that was made from extremely hard to machine materials. And so in the first instance, it was just so it could showcase our capabilities. And I thought, well, maybe I'll make some free sample pens to send out to potential customers. Um, but I mean, they, they take a lot of effort to produce. It's, uh, and so much effort goes into them that it's, it's grown into what will now be our product, which not only showcases our capabilities, but also provides a nice sort of revenue stream alongside it. Do you think that your customers will, will understand how much difficulty it is to make this part? Yeah, and I you don't want, know. You want them to, right? I mean, that's, that's got to be part of your marketing. Yeah, right? I mean, I've got one on me. And uh, to look at, it's very, very simple. Yeah, hold it up to the to the camera. Yeah, so it's a pen with a, a clip-on cap. It took, you know, days and days and hundreds of different inserted parts to go inside the cap. There's a piece that's press-fitted down inside the cap that interfaces with this little groove and gives just the right click. Ah, well, okay. That, when you hold the two parts in your hand, they click okay, but when you press the part down inside the cap, it constricts it, and now you can't even put the cap on. Or if you can get it on, you can't even pull it off. So I spent hours and hours just trying to get the, the feel of the click right. Um, there's also uh, many challenges involved in machining Nitronic 60 that perhaps maybe the people that would appreciate it most are people that have tried to cut it. But otherwise, I am yet to find anyone that looks at it and says, oh, I don't like that. So what are you what what machine are you using to do this? A Citizen, a Citizen sliding head what, machine is what it? model? It's an L three twenty. An L three. Um, it's from nineteen ninety three. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, so it is old. It was a non runner. I basically bought the bar feeder and got the Citizen for nothing. Uh, how, yeah. So the bar leader, the bar loader was newer than the Citizen. 
Yeah, well, it's about the same age. There was nothing wrong with the bar loader, but the Citizen wouldn't run. It had a, a fault on one of the drives, and all the hydraulic, pneumatic, and lubrication lines were either missing or completely perished. So, I mean, I, I bought that machine for a really good price, and because we're able to service our own machines, I spent months of evening, evenings and weekends uh, working on the machine to bring it up to speed. And now we have a really, really faithful machine on the shop floor. That, I mean, if I went to buy a really a brand new machine that I've got refi- you know, finance repayments to make on it, you know, it, I think perhaps the hourly rate for that machine may have to be higher. But this, this enables us to be very competitive right. on small sports parts. It's impressive that you're making such a, such a high pre- precision, elegant you sell a few of those pens, it costs more than the machine. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of the tooling on that machine costs more than the machine. Oh, probably. How much does a pen cost? Well, the pen is going to retail for £200. There'll be other versions of the pen in different types of materials. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you uh, look at... I mean, there's people out there selling £1,500 pocket knives, and they're beautiful, and they're very, very well made, and they use damask steel for the blade. kind of looks like a marble pattern. Um, I have started experimenting with using damask steel for the cap. Damask steel. Damask steel, yes. If you're looking through our old podcast, you'll see there's a podcast with a guy who makes uh, vaporizers. Yeah, I did listen to that. I yeah. listened to nearly all the podcasts, actually. No, I, I found myself driving a lot over a period of a couple of months. And, oh, you're uh, totally boosting my ego. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I was during the downturn, not the downturn, but the pandemic. I saw yeah. the numbers going down, down, down. And I'm just like, nobody cares anymore. <laughs> and um, you've had some very interesting guests. Thank you. Thank you. That 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 really makes me feel good considering you are a podcast listener. You're you know I guess I am you now. know your stuff. Have you ever been to England, Noah? I have a long time ago. Uh I think the last time I was in England was uh nineteen ninety six, maybe. Do you think most English people and I, I mean I don't know I don't know how I'd answer this if people ask me this about Americans, but first answer that comes to mind when you think English people and their feeling about living in England, you think most English people are happy they live in England and appreciate the country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, well, I live in the country and um, sometimes when I go to, well, I suppose our versions of big cities aren't quite the same, but. Well, London's big. Yeah. London's pretty big. And I come back from London thinking, God, I'm glad I live in the country. Right. So yeah. it's a whole nother world. Like United States. Yeah, I went to, I've been to the States once and I went to New York. And I don't think it's fair to say I've got a good taste of the States in the tourist trap of Times Square. But um, <laughs> it, was, it was huge. And when I came back, all the houses looked like little toy Lego houses. It just didn't, didn't feel right after spending a week in New York to come back to all these little houses. But uh, I'm glad to be home. Sure. Well, it's the same if I was to go to London and say, yeah, I, I know what England's all about. Yeah, true, true. Is it hard to find people, good people, to work in a machine shop? Yeah. It's probably the hardest part I think I've found so far. It's not to say that the people haven't been any good either. That's probably the worst thing about it. It's You could put uh, all of just really highly skilled, highly educated, or really motivated people all in a, all in a room, and it doesn't necessarily mean you've got a recipe for success. 
It, it depends on how you're able to to give them what they need to get back what what you need. And I think that I've learned a lot more about this as we move forward than I did at the start. I think that's very astute. How many people do you have at your company? Currently, I have one employee. Uh, we have another chap that's self-employed. He comes in when we need him. He works for me and a couple of other companies. Uh, and a lady in the office who's my mother. Uh, she does a fantastic job of all the paperwork and bits and pieces. And do you know what? Uh, I thought I, I said to my mom I was going to look for someone to help me in the office because uh, you know, I'm torn between the office and the workshop. And uh, when, when she offered to just fill in for a bit and just help, I thought, well, yeah, that, that would be good. But um, actually now I realize just the... I don't think I would trust that information with anyone else. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of sensitive information in that happens in the office as opposed to the workshop and having just someone you don't, you know, someone other than your family. Um, absolutely. It, it would be a bit strange, actually. I'd probably be a little bit less willing to, you know, to give them that information. Yeah. At least at first, you'd have to be constantly checking them. Yeah. You know, I, I was speaking with somebody else in a the past podcast that's coming out tomorrow. Um guy from MTD CNC and okay. he was he was talking about how people perceive manufacturing in English society how do you think they perceive English or the the English people or United Kingdom people perceive manufacturing as a, a trade and, and engineering too both of them yeah, well, to be an engineer is to still work white collar. Uh, maybe you're a civil engineer. Maybe you're designing buildings and bridges. I mean, in my part of the world, I think there's a lot of agriculture. There's a lot of engineering and there's a lot of labor, which I think we all kind of understand each other. Right. Whereas if you start going more towards the cities, uh, I think there'd be a lot less understanding of what it is that we do. I mean, you've got to look uh. at Instagram or social media. It's only, I say recently, it's only been the last couple of years that, I mean, machining and is had a bit more of a cool factor about it, that people actually engage into the content. Um, but if you compare that to the, you know, you, you look at the, the scale of the people in this community, as opposed to people that just like pictures of cats, <laughs> you know, it, it's still, it's tiny. So I think there's probably a lot less people understand it than, I mean, in, in my world, in my small part of the world, I think that everybody understands it. I just assume that everybody understands what CNC machine is. Interesting. But, uh, that's not the case, I'm sure. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. This would be a good year if we could finish it the way we started it. 
Okay. Which was? On a high. I mean, uh, we've been growing year on year and really pushing hard. Um, but as everyone knows, the last couple of months is just, I don't know, it hasn't really put, hasn't really put us back. Uh, I know it has put some people back, but certainly put for a period there of a few weeks, it put things on pause. Just a few weeks. Yeah, we had a period of about three weeks where we couldn't get materials uh, from Germany that we needed. Um, we've got lots of customers. But what are your main? What are the things you are mainly making your your money on? The cash flow. Flow control products. Flow control. So anything with uh, yeah flow control, uh, metering instrumentation, uh, little shafts, pins, bushes. And you're making that on Swiss machines or on just single spindle? Yeah, on the Citizen we make a lot of the little pins and shafts and anything in a twenty mil diameter uh, envelope. But otherwise, we use two Atachi Siki four-axis mill turn machines. And uh, I mean, these machines, again, they're mid-90s Japanese, but uh, they're really repeatable, very accurate. And uh, we can complete turned milled parts in one setup usually. Wow. The industry we serve has been able to diversify into other fields. It's not strictly, you know, people are going to continue to have a need for flowing liquid natural gas or oil or orange juice or milk. Um, but those products that flow those things can flow anything. And so they're not bound by certain industries. And so some of my customers have had to diversify a little bit to push their products in a different direction. But ultimately, it means they come back and reorder the same parts they ordered you know, before the pandemic. What was something really interesting you learned last week? Something really interesting I learned last week. Or in the last seven days. <laughs> um. Just how much work two men and a couple old CNC machines can output in a in a week. Uh, I think when push really comes to shove, we can really turn up the pace and uh, continue to compete with with other people in our industry that's been around a lot longer than we have and have a lot more experience and capabilities than we have. I mean, you just got to be hungry for it. I guess that wasn't the first time I learned that, but I've certainly been very surprised by it this week. Very impressive. Yeah. I mean, you have two people, you have ancient CNC machines. Well, the, the, the ancient would be like little pegs in holes, peg, pegboard machines or tape fed. Uh, these ones, are, yeah, they're, they're becoming, <laughs> becoming classics, I think. They're classics. They're, yeah. They're total classics, like yeah. Model T. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to say to the people of the world? Well, I would. I am looking forward. This to is this your thing. chance. This is my chance. This is your uh, chance. Well, I would give a shameless plug to anybody who would like to go and visit uh, circmfg.co.uk and have a look at our website. We are building a company centric to CNC turn parts, and uh, I'd love for any RFQs to land in my inbox from anyone that's listened to this podcast. I think it'd be a really special link. Very cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the podcast. If this is going to be a series of shops around the world, I think it's going to be great. From today's machining world, this is a Swarfcast production. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to see extended video interviews and join our mailing list. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our audio engineer is Bill Steffi. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. 
For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information on todaysmachiningworld.com.